This is Back to Excited with your host, Arvind, and Acting the Fool from Pension Plan Puppets. Hi, welcome to Back to Excited, episode 126. My name is Arvind, joining me as always, my colleague from PensionPlanPuppets.com is Acting the Fool Hi, everybody. We have hockey to discuss. Oh my god, we've made it to the promised land. I'm so excited. Yeah, oh. and you know, there are, there are very real conversations that could and should be had about, you know, the ethics of the NHL playing in a pandemic and whether it's going to be manageable at all. We've already seen the NBA <clears throat> have real troubles with um, with rosters and maybe, maybe the NHL will, will do better. But, you know, it's hard to have a normal life or anything approximating a normal life in a pandemic. It's probably not going to be smooth 100% of the way. Mm-hmm. But for now, uh, we'd like to engage in a little bit of escapism and just talk about hockey. Yes. Uh, the way we decided to approach this was we thought we would look at those shiny new lines that Sheldon Keefe has been putting together. In... You know he invented lines. He did, actually. It was creative of him to just arrange players in that fashion. Before before players just went out, you know, <laughs> kind of arbitrarily. That's why there were so many too many men penalties. Yeah, you know what? It was a real problem. You get like an eight-guy mob out there. So, yeah, we decided we would just look at that as kind of a framework for looking at the roster by examining how these lines and pairings are supposed to work. Now... One, we know there was a scrimmage last night. Arvin watched and recapped it. I watched the movie Palm Springs starring Andy Sandberg and Christina Milioti. It was delightful. It's a a very good uh, movie. Also, I'm going to... I'm a Kristen Milioti simp, so I'm going to say that it's Kristen, (laughs) not Christina. Don't disrespect my girl like that. (laughs) I am justly reproved for my misstatement here. You know, actually, this is sort of worrying because it shows that my inability to say names correctly is not restricted to hockey players. (laughs) So... (laughs) Apparently, it was a good movie. I, I yeah. liked it a lot. Yeah, I know. It was uh, a mix of being just sort of funny and crazy while also having a pretty existential tone to it, but still being mm. entertaining. So, yeah, anyway. It's a very good 2020 movie. Yeah, it was very much uh, eerily on brand, considering mm. that the movie was made before the pandemic. Anyway, the point is I didn't see the scrimmage, but Arvin did. But we did a bunch of research. We're going to kind of look through the, the lineup as a framework, as discussed, and then Arvind will chime in with things that he saw from them last night. We know lines are fluid, especially with Sheldon Keefe, but with any mm-hmm. coach. This could change by opening night. This could change by two nights later. It's one of those things where you have to expect a lot of change, but it's a cool way to look at the lineup. And because Sheldon Keefe has done some things that I think I at least found surprising with constructing the forward lineup especially... It will be interesting to see if that bears out how he views the roster, what that says about how he looks at it. So we figured that that would make a good framework for our most actual Leaf content-y podcast in a long time. So, yeah. Okay. So the big news out of practice was the newly reconstituted first line of Joe Thornton, Austin Matthews, and Mitch Marner. And that surprised a lot of people, including me. It also launched about a thousand fanfics. Uh, <laughs> doesn't everything. But yeah, so it's... Our short line on it is it's two passers and a shooter to an extreme degree. And it's interesting how that will play out. So for a long time now, Joe Thornton has been one of the most shot-averse players in the NHL. We talk about him as a great playmaker, which he is one of the greatest playmakers in the history of the sport. But he also 
doesn't like shooting unless it's a really good opportunity or he has no other choice. And that's maybe more extreme than I think people realize. In 2016-17, and I used a cutoff of 200 minutes at five on five, Joe Thornton was dead last in the NHL among forwards in terms of how often he tried to shoot the puck. Dead last out of 434 of them. Uh, in the years since, he's been third percentile, first percentile, first percentile. It's really, 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 really rare that he decides to just fire one off for the hell of it. He is a past first player par excellence. He is, and we saw we yeah. saw that even yesterday. Like there was a, a moment on the power play where I believe he was basically alone, just kind of low left circle from the goalie's perspective, and he he just passed it. <laughs> yeah, like, you know, you, you, and I believe even the the commentator Cheryl Pounder said it's like, yeah, he really should shoot there. And it's like, well, that that's Joe Thornton. He just doesn't do that. Yeah, he did shoot in his youth to some extent, and his youth was a long time ago. It was early in the first decade of the 2000s. And he hit 37 goals one year. You know, he could produce. But he's pass first, pass always to an extent that I don't think people even realize because they think of Mitch Marner as generally being kind of pass first. And he sort of is. But Mitch Marner shoots a decent amount on his own volition. Yeah. He's about maybe a little bit more frequently than league average last year in percentile rank. And then, of course, Matthews shoots all the goddamn time. He was near the top of the league last year and how often he shot it. And so this is sort of a reconstituting of the line. And I started with this little layout of how often they shoot because the result seems to be that Marner is going to shoot more. With two passers and Austin Matthews, the natural instinct is, okay, they will give it to Matthews as much as they can't possibly can. And Matthews is maybe the best shooter in the NHL at this point. Certainly at 5v5, he has a case. So good. But, you know, there will be opportunities for players other than Austin Matthews that will come up. And Thornton has in the past shown a proclivity for taking advantage. You know, on one of those lists, one of the guys who never shot uh, was Tyler Bozak when he played with Phil Kessel. And Bozak did well doing that because he picked his spots. And so he shot like 20%. Thornton isn't really going to do that anymore, though. He picks his spots well, but he's not going to be a great finisher. And just to really drive home how shot-averse Thornton is, um, only one forward who played above 500 5v5 minutes last year shot less than him uh, on a rate basis, and that's Valtteri Filipina. Yeah, who is like Thornton, but finishing worse than playing in Detroit. So, (laughs) yeah, that gives you some questions as to how this is going to work. Now, the Sheldon Keefe system that we've talked so very much about is a bit more cycle-heavy than the Mike Babcock system seemed to be. We've talked about the third man high, where the forward comes back to the blue line, gives more passing passing, excuse me, options to the defenseman on the points, and it lets you kind of keep rotating almost like a blender around the outside of the offensive zone. You keep moving, you keep cycling, you wait for your chance, and everyone is willing to move around more to make that happen. You could see that driving pretty well with how Joe Thornton approaches things where he looks for the best passing opportunity of the various people he can throw it to in the offensive zone. And he hits them with one. And that's good. At the same time, when you add someone who's going to be an almost zero shot threat to that process, 
That's a bit of an issue. And one of the objections to the system to begin with, and I've heard Katja raise this, is because everyone is constantly cycling around like a blender. Sometimes the guy you end up putting in the A1 shooting position is like Justin Hall or something. Because everyone is moving around to move the defense around to be more unexpected. The result is that the guy who ends up in the best spot is not who you would probably prefer, all else being equal, which is Austin mm -hmm. Matthews. And so yeah. that's something to think about. There is a, a constellation, which is Joe Thornton is not fast anymore. He's still big. He's still very hard to knock off the puck, and his vision is still terrific. But previous versions of these kind of lines had Zach Hyman, who would be probably the first man in any opportunity he got. You know, aggressive forechecking, really likes to drive for it, dig it out, throw it to his line mates. Joe Thornton is not going to be the first guy into the zone. That's just not going to happen very often because he's not capable of it at this point in his career. And so you are giving something back in exchange for this, this vision that he's able to provide. And maybe as kind of a status constellation because he is still capital J, capital T, Joe Thornton. And now he gets to play with two of the best players on the team. So there are some pros and cons there. Um, do you want to talk about what you think about that or saw last night? Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, uh, to, to jump off one of your earlier points about, I think one of the, where, where you seem to come down on it is that, like, when this group gets the puck in the offensive zone, mm -hmm. it's going to be, that's a bad spot for the defense. Mm. Right? No defense is like, oh, cool, this this is fine. Right? Um, <laughs> I'm pretty sure about what's happening right now. Yeah. And, in fact, we, we saw that a bit last night. I think in the third period, they had a shift against... And I'm pointing out the opposition here because this, this shift was against the Tavares line and Muzzin Hall. So, you know, NHL players, good NHL players at that. Mm -hmm. And they, they had a shift where um, they did kind of the what, what Keith probably dreams of when he thinks about how this system should work. Right. Right? They had the... Um, they had quick interchanges. They had... Um, Matthews coming up high and then finding a soft spot and darting in. Marner found him with a beautiful uh, backhand pass. The, the defense was was confused, and it is still the Leafs, so maybe that's not too difficult to do. Um, and it's you know it's I'm not, I'm not saying that just to be glib. The Leafs still aren't you know great defensively, mm -hmm. um, but it ended up with Matthews getting a really really nice shot uh, in tight. And uh, I don't remember to what extent Thornton factored in on that play, but that's the type of play you would imagine he could contribute to quite a bit, right? With his ability to protect the puck, with his great passing. And, and passing is one of those things that uh, synergizes with other passers, mm -hmm. right? Like having multiple passers, it, it's like a multiplicative effect. Right. Because now everyone is in play basically all the time. Um, so it, it's, I can see that working. Um, my impressions of them yesterday was that generally they weren't, phenomenal in the offensive zone they had or at least to start they got better as the game progressed but what i saw a lot from them and this was more marner and matthews than thornton um was that they were really really good at puck recovery mm. and that's not you know too shocking matthews and marner have always been you know kind of puck thieves uh but marner's goal yesterday was set up by matthews robbing uh timu kibihame is mm -hmm. it timu i'm just gonna say kibihame uh, at the defensive blue line, and then passing it up to, to Marner for essentially a breakaway. Mm -hmm. um, Martin Rinsen went off for like a somewhat awkward change, which is, is a theme that I'll actually get into 
in a bit. Mm-hmm. Um, and then Matthew's goal was set up by Marner robbing Pierre Engvall uh, as he tried to exit the zone. Um, and then, you know, Marner drove the net, made a good play, got his own rebound, passed it to Matthews. That's where they looked really, really nice. Um, and I think that might be, especially early on when teams are sloppy, that might be a way for them to generate uh, consistent offense within the zone by forcing those those turnovers. Because um, they, I can see them having a little bit of trouble gaining the zone. Mm-hmm. And that is uh, uh, what stands out yeah. to me about this. Is that... Yeah, sorry, go sorry, ahead. Sorry, go ahead. Oh, yeah, I was just going to say, there is a reallocation of roles, and just the way that we're accustomed to seeing this work is, and you said this to me the other day, is the best line on the Leafs has been two stars and Zach Hyman for the last few years, basically consistently. And obviously the two stars are what matters. A line with Matthews and Marner on it is probably never going to be bad. There's too much talent. And this applies to Tavares and Nylander, too, where it's just like, it'll probably work to a pretty decent extent. Is it the best option? I'm not so sure of it. But it does involve some changes in roles. You know, talking about now Matthews and Marner are playing maybe more aggressively, harder on the forecheck. Marner had a great quote, and this is via Kristen Shilton. For me, it's more so trying to find a slot opportunity Trying to be, I guess, a little bit of a worm in the slot trying to find a spot. I don't know if he was trying to rap there, but he did it. Anyway, that's not typically what I think most of us think of with Mitch Marner. You know, he's very capable of sort of claiming a huge swath out of the right side of the ice where he can kind of dance around, dodge, be very hard to hit, very hard to get the puck off. And sort of darting around looking for opportunities to make a pass. He's not incapable of getting to the high danger areas and finishing by any means. You know, he's a good player. And yeah, as you said, yeah. people I think people overrate the extent to which Marner is pass first or mm-hmm. or shot averse, I should say. Like Thornton is shot averse. Marner shoots a reasonable amount, actually. And yeah. he doesn't have a great shot, but he's not he's also not a bad finisher. No, I think... He's consistently yeah. been around league average when you adjust for his quality of shots. I, I think the, the visual of his slap shot, which is notably not as powerful, yeah. and often looks like kind of a, a desperation play, where, you know, he looks around... We would see this towards the end of the Jim Heller power play era. He would look around, not see a ton of passing options, and say, okay, I guess I might as well put one on net, according to ancient hockey wisdom. That's what you do. And he would wind up for a slap shot that didn't seem to have much of a prayer of doing anything. And I think that visual stays with you. But it doesn't mean that he's incapable as a goal scorer in general. You know, he is an exceptionally talented player. So Mm -hmm. I I do want to say when I'm saying, okay, these type of players are like this. Especially with players who have as much versatility as Marner and Matthews. They will change. They will adapt. And there's a good chance that as these guys get more used to each other, if this line is sustained for a longer period, it starts to work more and maybe work in ways that aren't really anticipated when we say, okay, Thornton's going to be too slow. He'll have to be a passer on the cycle. Matthews and Marner will have to kind of do their thing. And the goal will always be get the puck to Matthews. You know, it won't be that 
simple or that limited in practice. Um, yeah, yeah. But I think I think we can say the general trend is that mm-hmm. Thornton is going to help less with getting the puck to the offensive zone and more once we get there, and that's going to put a bigger transition burden on Matthews and uh, Marner. Neither of them are bad transition players at all. They're not as good as Nylander in that respect, but very few people are. Mm-hmm. And there, it is worth noting, Sheldon Keefe gave two quotes on this. Well, he gave lots of quotes on this, but two that stood out to me. One, he said part of the pitch to Joe Thornton was that he could play with Matthews and Nylander, uh, or Matthews and Marner. Um, and I think that this is mostly representative of that. It's, you know, Joe, we know you're a big deal. You are a star player. We want to give you chances to enjoy the glory a bit. We're not going to just, you know, dump you as the bottom six center because that's what you are at this stage. We respect all that you still have to bring to the game. It's a status move to some extent. I'm not saying that I think Keith doesn't believe in this line, but I think that keeping the player happy was a, a role of it. He's also said he's going to be managing Thornton's minutes. Yes. And if you're managing Thornton's minutes you're not playing him first line left wing all the time because that would be playing pretty much the most minutes, especially given how Austin Matthews was used last year. Yes. Um, one of the big changes under Keefe compared to Babcock was, and this is a change that people seem to like, mm-hmm. um, and I think generally w- was was a good thing, yeah. uh, in terms of how it helped the Leafs you know, in the moment. He, he played Matthews and Marner more, right? And uh, certainly on the power play, started really loading up PP1 and... Um, focusing the time on ice towards them, which, I, again, pretty smart move. And, mm. But even five on five, uh, Matthews and Marner became some of the most played players in the league. Mm-hmm. And, you know, they're very good. They're young. They're in a position to do it. They're being paid like it. I think that, yeah, that's definitely a justifiable decision. It's interesting he looks as if he... And this isn't an aside, but he looks like he might be moving away from the overloaded PP1. Yeah, and I don't know if that was just for, because it was a split squad game and you, you couldn't have Nylander and Tavares on that top unit as well. Yeah, right. and, but, and you know, maybe he'll revert. Uh, I know Manny Malhotra is apparently in charge of that, despite him being, when he played, a very defensive center. But apparently part of his roles as assistant coach are to be a power play guy. So yeah, that'll be something to keep an eye on, whether that reverts to the all-stars playing 90 seconds of each power play, or if there is a return to more of a balance. I think one of the the smartest things Keith did was definitely to move to a heavy first power play, even if I didn't like everything it did from a tactical perspective. Mm -hmm. Bringing it back around to the, the 5v5 thing, I have to say, honestly, I can see ways in which this will work, there's too much talent on this team, on this line, for it not to be at least pretty good. The level of vision and playmaking on the wings is unreal. Matthews is a great shooter. They will get points. This is not, I think, the best option. And if it were up to me, I would be fairly confident in changing that right away. But we'll see. Yeah, it, it, it could it could very easily... as you. You mentioned it could very easily be the case where, where Keith is kind of setting this up one way, for, you know, to pay to respect Orton and because, you know, he thinks, okay, this is worth trying. Mm-hmm. But in the back of his mind, it's like, okay, you know, mind break last in case of emergency. I, I put Hyman up there. I put Mikheyev up there. Mm-hmm. Right? And it's also, you know, lines might not be consistent even within games this year. Yeah. 
like there's going to be a huge amount of versatility and there's an argument to be said hey it's preseason i want to get looks at things that i haven't seen yes yeah you you know you know what hyman's providing if he's on that line Mm -hmm. right uh but you want to get some reps for joe thornton there and see okay what what can they build together in case we have to go to that later yeah so one of the we've mentioned hyman a lot and i think our preference would be to put him there if we're just trying to optimize that line alone, right? Our, our preference is probably put Hyman there because he has a perfect complementary skill set for two stars. Yeah. Um, and we'll get into this later, but it seems like, it almost seems like what's happened, and this feeds into the second line too, what's happened is that Keith has started out with his shutdown line and then he's built the wingers, you know, the spare wingers of the top two lines based on who was available after the shutdown line is created. It did feel like that. So with that said, we can probably move on to talking about the other one of these two lines, which is um, Jimmy VC playing the Matt Molson, Kyle Oxbozo role <laughs> with John Tavares and William Nylander. Yes. And so the bottom line takeaway that I had on two passers and a shooter with Thornton Matthews and Marner was that they're all really good and it'll probably work to a, decent level i think that can be the starting point here you have john Tavares and william nylander you could put a statue of big bird on their left wing and they would get him goals and i'm not saying that vc is like bad either he's a player with some limitations and some skills but Tavares and nylander are two of the most versatile offensive players in the nhl and i really don't think i'm overselling that especially as regards Tavares. There really isn't anything that is part of being an elite offensive player in the NHL that John Tavares can't do. He's, you know, maybe a B-level skater, but he can shoot, he can pass, he has that kind of grace under fire thing where he just doesn't seem to be dissuaded that much by physical contact. You know, he'll go to the dirty areas and stay upright long enough to get his stick on the puck. Really good in tight areas, mm-hmm. right? Great, great puck skills. Yeah, whereas Nylander is a premier transition player. Very good skater. Assuming last year is sustained to some extent, and from that gif I saw, it looks like he's starting off okay. He's also a very good shooter now. And so, yeah. And, e- yeah. and even if we just say he's an average shooter, right? Like the rest of his offensive game is good enough that he's still quite complete. You, you He's not a non-threat. Exactly. Like, the two of them together can do basically everything that you need two players to do. And so, yeah, Tavares, Nylander, plus Guy is good. Like, that's automatically at least a decent NHL top line, I think. Um, Jimmy VC is kind of different. He's big. He knows where to stand. I talked about that Grace Under Fire thing from John Tavares. VC does get to the dangerous areas of the ice and persist there long enough to score i asked kevin who's a friend of the pod about jimmy vc vc played in buffalo last year and so kevin saw a lot of him and he was kind enough to give me a scouting report so i'm gonna give that to y'all now vc is a capable player in the right role but in a very specific way he's a shaky puck handler doesn't have amazing skill or creativity or finish but He gets to high danger areas and is adept at holding his position and hacking away at pucks. He's never going to be a seriously plus finisher, 
but he will give you some pow some value if you can feed him high danger passes. The problem is that it's hard to fit this on a top six line because of his poor contributions to transition play slash defense. So the impulse is to say, play him with Eichel or Matthews or Nylander, and they can pump him high danger passes, but it tends to break down because he isn't helping positively chain defensive work into offensive possession cycling. He is an okay penalty killer despite being bad at defense, aggressively challenges lanes a lot on the PK and even strength, and then misses a breakaway. Short version, he has a skill set that you want to use as a complementary top six player, but will end up in the bottom six where you hold your breath that he can hang in defensive minutes. If I was the Leafs, I'd play him with Spezza in the minutes that Spezza got last year. So that seems to bear pretty directly on the decision to play him with Tavares and Nylander. And for right. what it's worth, the stat profile seems to bear out the scouting report pretty strongly. Um, yeah, yeah. It, it does seem a bit like, um, you know the scene in Arrested Development where um, Tobias and, I forget her name, Portia de Rossi's character Lindsay. are like, you know, we, we can try long distance. It doesn't work for anyone, but it might work for us. <laughs> right? It's like People we can somehow delude themselves into thinking it might, but, but it yeah. might work for us. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, so it's like, we can try Jimmy Vesey in the top six. No, everyone's tried it before. It never worked for them, but maybe <laughs> it'll work for us. And in in Keith's defense here, mm-hmm. I don't think VC has ever had the quality of teammate of Matthews plus Nylander. Like I'm sure he's played a bit with Eichel last year. Yeah. Um, but you know, or sorry, uh, Tavares and Nylander. I think I said Matthews. But you know, having two bona fide elite offensive players on him is you know that that's as easy a passenger situation as you could possibly have. So if it doesn't work here, I think I'm very comfortable saying, okay, he just can't really work anywhere in any sort of top six role. Mm-hmm. Um, already, I can see myself getting annoyed at Jimmy Vc, uh, just mm-hmm. based on the game yesterday. <laughs> <laughs> Good start. Um, and it's not that he was bad or anything. He, he was fine, actually. Um, it's just that the most... You will often notice him screwing up a play that either Tavares or Nylander created. <laughs> yeah, he's going to be very distinctly the third best guy on the line. By a lot. Yes. Mm-hmm. So, in line with what Kevin said, if this line works, it's going to test the ability of Tavares and Nylander to do all the heavy lifting in terms of creation. Mm-hmm. Right? Um, to a much higher degree than putting either Mikhaev or Hyman here. Because neither of those guys are, are super great transition players or passers, but their board work helps um, complement the puck skills of, you know, their more skilled teammates. Right. VC is not really, um, you know, he's, he's a relatively big guy and he's a strong guy, but it hasn't really translated to strong play driving, generally speaking. Yeah. You know, his impact on play driving is getting some goal mouth shots that he doesn't really convert at a particularly good rate. Yeah, it's worth making a distinction there. So far as we can tell, and I'm going by hockey viz here, as a shooter, he's about average or slightly below average. He gets to good spots, so he does decently well. You know, he scored in the teens uh, while he was in New York. But for the quality of those shots, he's not an especially great finisher. And you say, okay, well, that's still okay. He's going to the right spot and he's getting pucks in. But if that's his calling card... That's not necessarily a ton to hang your hat on because he's not superlative at it. He's just good at it. And yeah, with players like Tavares and Nylander, there should be a lot of chances. There should be a lot of rebounds. 
possibilities for tip-ins, but also they can do a fair bit of the stuff that VC does. And, you know, obviously they'll, they'll spread out. There will be more opportunities. But I'm not sure that you're getting synergy there, to use a horrible tech buzzword. Like, I, I don't know that you're getting really above average value out of Tavares and Elander by virtue of putting VC there. If yeah, you leave and- him there, he will score goals, though. Like, he'll put up totals. I don't have a lot of doubt about that. Yeah, to, to me, it, it seems that, like, VC is kind of the guy left over. Right, that, that's mm. the thing. I, I, don't, I don't feel particularly great about him on this line. But if you start from the idea of what the third line has to be in order to be a reasonable shutdown line, and you know, my guess is that Keith has kind of built with that in mind. Mm-hmm. Well, he's kind of the guy left over. Yes. And it would be really nice if, you know, if we had a time machine and found peak Nick Robertson. He might be a great fit here. Mm-hmm. Right, um, and you know, short of a time machine, if if Nick Robertson, in this really abbreviated training camp, was able to force their hand and take the spot, that would be great too, right? Because then you get a guy who projects as maybe a plus finisher, who is really good at finding space. You know, Tavares and Nylander are both phenomenal passers, and who might be able to contribute a bit more to build up. Well, that that would make a lot of sense. The thing is, I think it's incredibly unlikely that Robertson really forces his way onto uh, into this role particularly quickly. Maybe it happens by the end of the year if, you know, he gets an audition and plays really well. Like, a lot of things have to go right for that to happen. Yeah, and I know that people want it because he's the most exciting forward prospect in the organization. He scored a hell of a goal in the series against Columbus. He scored a pretty nice goal last night, too. He's got a cannon. But is the whole game there? Is it complete? I don't know. And I know that that feels like, you know, the old hockey man rain cloud that you kind of put over a prospect everyone's excited about. But I have to admit, I wasn't that impressed with him in the Columbus series, aside from the one goal. I don't think he was terrible. I don't want to hold him to some crazy standard because he was 18. But like, you know, I, I didn't think that he was making it a no doubt about it. Okay, obviously you can't even question this. Like, when Matthews came in, uh, and this was, <laughs> I mean, obviously he scored four goals his first NHL game, but, like, even in the preseason, you were like, oh, no, okay, that guy's a top six center in the NHL now. Mm-hmm. You know, Robertson just can't force that decision. That's totally fine. He turned 19 yeah, a couple months ago. to hold him to the standard of, of Austin Matthews, right? Austin Matthews was the first overall pick, and no doubt about it, first overall pick. Yeah, and, like, is probably going to be a Hall of Famer at the end. So... Yeah, there's a there's a gap there. And again, like that's kind of an unfair comparison, but like I look at him and I think, okay, what's objectively best for his development? And I think it would be very good for him to get a year in the AHL. And the craziness of this season, whether we don't even know how successfully Junior is gonna do anything, how the AHL is gonna do, but as it stands, if the junior leagues are not going and the AHL is Apparently, the transfer agreement allows them, allows the Leafs, to have Roberts in the AHL, which would be good at a lower pro league level. You know, give him some time to work on some things, and then he's ready to contend for a spot at age 20, which is still crazy. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Yeah, this is not like a make or break year for Robertson, where it's like, oh, if he doesn't show up in the NHL, he got to start one. Like, he's 19. Yeah, right, he's, we, we he's so young. He's even he's really young. Yeah, he. I mean, he was almost the youngest player in the draft that he was in. 
So, yeah, it's just... And, and to be clear, like, you know, maybe he takes a big leap. He's at the age where it could happen. I'm not ruling it out. I'm just saying I haven't seen it. Yes. I've, I've seen a really great shot that will look good in highlight reels, and, and that's fine. But, like, at the end of the year, it would be like, oh, yeah, he scored seven or eight great goals. But how was the overall impact of the line? Yeah, so. and my impression of him yesterday was that he was honestly quite quiet aside from that mm-hmm. um, power play, you know, bomb. And funnily enough, he, he got he also got an assist, but it was it was a secondary power play assist where um, actually it might not have been technically a power play goal because the penalty had just expired. But when on Nylander's one timer, he got the secondary assist. Mm. So you know, uh, not a huge value add play there. Um, yeah. It's worth talking about this this line as they were last night. This this VC um, Tavares Nylander line, mm-hmm. Th- they they looked very very good, right? Like. Mm. Um, they were generating offense consistently. They, they had a lot of matchups against Brody and Riley. And Nylander in particular um, did a great job forcing turnovers off Riley in the offensive zone. Generated some great chances from that. VC had a couple chances based on that. It's a little bittersweet that it's that easy, eh? To generate chances <laughs> off Morgan Riley. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, and what else did they do? Uh, they, they had. I was interested, interested in the matchups against the Matthews line and the, and the Riley-Brody pairing because mm-hmm. that's the only real you know like for like talent for with these guys mm. um and it, it was kind of interesting both the matthews line and the Tavares line could get chances on each other you know they're both yeah. better offensively <laughs> than they are defensively um that so it's not sense. too surprising uh but yeah Tavares and Nienander looked they looked good they looked really good and vc looked there and yeah frankly that, that's all he needs to be he just needs to be there and somewhat competent if we get you know, a, a great season out of Tavares and Nylander. He's not going to, VC's not going to be asked to do too much in terms of, you know, contributing aside from being in the right spot and slamming pucks into the goalie. Yeah. I think the bottom line on Jimmy VC is he's a guy. He's probably a third line winger in ability, but that's okay. You can put him with two star players and have him work well enough. Um,. I'm not saying it would be my first choice, but I think it's certainly viable. I think that line will be fine. Yeah, it, it's viable. It's just, it, it's going to, it is going to ask a lot of Tavares and Nylander. Yeah. And Nylander in particular in the neutral zone. Yeah, like he's like got to be the transition yeah. guy. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. It's, it's, he's going to have to do a lot of the heavy lifting there, especially because Tavares isn't a dynamic skater. No. Right, so. He's, he's very smart, and yeah. I think that his speed is much less of a deficit than it might otherwise be because he's so smart. But yeah, he's, you know, you'll notice when he's skating next to some guys, they outspeed him a lot. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, it, yeah, very much. Yeah. I, like, and I think all of this is fine if you're getting benefits elsewhere. And as we've been sort of building up to, it seems like this roster is arranged in the hopes of making a shutdown line out of the third line or a defensively oriented line at least. And in theory, that's Ilya Mikhaev, Alexander Kerfoot, Zach Hyman on the right wing. And Zach Hyman is a right shot, for what it's worth. Um, Kerfoot has been dealing with a minor leg injury. And so Pierre Engvall has been taking that spot in practice and did last night in the scrimmage. Kerfoot is uncertain for opening night. They seem like it's on the table, so it doesn't sound like it's anything too severe. And we anticipate Kerfoot will be back. So we're going to evaluate it on the basis of it's Mikhaev, Kerfoot, Hyman. In theory, 
as we were saying, that's the shutdown line. As for Hockey Viz, they were all below league average defensively last year. Now, so was Toronto by more. <laughs> and so maybe they're kind of the best we're going to do. I yeah, do think that these are decent defensive forwards. I think they're all at least pretty decent at it. I don't think any of them is Bergeron in cheap's clothing or anything like that, but yeah, I get the idea. Uh, Mikhaev is a kind of rush-heavy offensive player. He gets a bit of a tunnel vision sometimes, a little bit cabinet-esque, but, you know, I guess sometimes that's going to lead to chances as long as the shooting isn't as bad as it was the last few weeks of last year before his injury. Uh, Zach Hyman might become a bit more of a transition threat on his natural wing. I know Kevin Papetti has talked about that in the past, suggesting that because Hyman's a right shot, if he's coming up the right side, the puck is carried closer to the boards. He has less to worry about in terms of protecting it. He might be more capable of transitioning through the neutral zone, which this line could use. And then Kerfoot is kind of a smart player in all respects. He can make good passes. I think that he's sort of a sound player without being very spectacular in most respects. And I think that might have done him a bit of a disservice, especially compared to Nazan Kadri, who's better. But Kadri stands out more. Sometimes not always for the best reasons, but often for good reasons. Mm-hmm. And, and Kerfoot is quieter. And so in theory, you can look at them and you can say, okay, they're all defensively pretty smart. Mikhaev and Hyman are both capable of rush chances. Maybe you put them up against a strong offensive line. They do a pretty good job keeping things clean. Every now and then one of them zooms behind the opposition for a rush chance and kind of hits them on the counterattack. And it sort of works in theory. But, you know, there are lines of defensively sound players that can do this that aren't necessarily composed of what we would consider stars. But the one that came to mind for me was Thomas Tatar, Philip Deneau, and Brendan Gallagher in Montreal. And I think that that, as much as it pains me to give credit to the Montreal Canadiens, that line is objectively more talented than this one. Mm-hmm. By a fair bit. And so, the truth is, as much as it's a cool idea to have a third line that can shut down top lines and kind of cancel them out and give you opportunities for your own top line. It's hard to beat elite players when you are yourself not an elite player. You know, you're going in at a talent deficit, and I don't know that any of these guys, or all of them together, have such a superlative defensive impact that they're actually going to succeed shutting down top opposition. I think the lineup is kind of constructed for this line, and I'm a little skeptical that it can do what it looks like it's supposed to. Yeah, it, it seems like a sort of pale imitation of Gord, Goodrow, and Coleman mm. in Tampa. Yeah, they're another good example of a third line. Probably, I, you know, because they were less heralded before, they might be a, a better in terms of name rec yeah. compared to these Win- ones, but yeah. Winning a cup will do that. Yeah. <laughs> um, with, with the Montreal line, you, you mentioned, like, I mean, that's their first line, essentially, right? Yes, but it's Montreal, so they don't actually have a first line. <laughs> Good point. Woo, um, free slam. But yeah, no, they're... they. That's the other thing is, yeah, they're used up the lineup, and they play tough comp, and they win it. But yeah, they're 
they're also just good players, better players than these, I'm afraid. And that's no disrespect to these, all of whom I like, these three players. But yeah, I, I don't think the material is here for this to really work. Right. It's, uh, yeah, if we compare it to that Gord, Goodrow, um, Coleman line, I think mm-hmm. that line has a bit more speed and a bit more ability within the with the neutral zone, mm-hmm. right? Like Gord is not an unskilled player by any means. Coleman is he, he's not great once he gets into the offensive zone, to my understanding. But mm-hmm. getting there, he's very good, right? He's 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 a great transition player. He actually generates a decent amount of shots. He, he's just not really a, a plus passer. Whereas with this group, with Kerfoot um, or Engvall, Mikheyev and, and Hyman, I struggle to see how they're going to get into the offensive zone. Mm. Like consistently, it feels like they're going to be forced to dump it in a lot, and it. I feel like this is this ends up being a line where. You know they. Do a reasonable job of. Uh, preventing you know super high quality chances against. In, uh, in the defensive zone they'll get the puck out and then they'll dump in and go for a change and I think they're going to end up with like a 42% expected goals percentage as a result because they're never in the offensive zone at all to yeah, rock and when, when the they're in the offensive ledger. zone yeah. you know, when they're in the offensive zone I think it's going to be really one note it's going to be get it to the point get it on net hope for a rebound that's it yeah like, like this feels like a real grind line it's the kind of line that you put together when you have a less talented team and I do wonder if it's the best use because, as we've been saying, Zach Hyman works really well with elite players. I genuinely believe he's one of the better complementary players in the NHL to offensive stars because he can do things that free them up. He goes in and wins board battles. And when he gets into a board battle, Zach Hyman takes it as a personal insult that anyone else would exit with the puck besides him. And it's hard to kind of quantify that intensity, that just determination to fight like hell. But I do really feel like I've seen it with them. And the description of uh, the, the third line in Tampa is that they had three guys who have that attitude that are all really tough tooth and nail fighters in board battles. I don't know that Mikhaev and especially Kerfoot do that. To the same extent. I just, I don't think that they're the same type of player. That's not the end of the world or anything. But it's another thing that makes me wonder how well this is going to work. If this line has like extraordinary tenacity and they're just an absolute pain in the ass to play with, left and right, they are hounding and harassing the opposition every time they get into the zone. This will work better and better. And it might even lead to a chance where the Leafs get to inflict some of the frustration that normally seems to happen to us mm-hmm. when really big-name star players don't seem to achieve a lot for a whole extended period of time. I don't know that the skill set is there, and particularly from Kerfoot and Mikhaev, I've seen things that I like. I've seen things that are impressive. I have not seen the ability to make that happen. Yeah, this is, this is a line that I have kind of the most questions about. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, there's... Uh, the the first two lines are the Leafs reaping, right? <laughs> and the bottom two lines are the Leafs sowing. 
<laughs> yes, that's a good way to put it. Right? Like, the first two nines, it's like, oh, shit, this is awesome. We have yeah. these two-star players. Who gives a fuck who the left wing is? We're just going to stunt on you and dunk and all that shit. Yeah. And then the bottom nine is like, wait, what the fuck? Where'd all the good players go? <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. It's, we're, re- we're not a deep team anymore. We're not. Mm-hmm. Right? Um, we're, we're, in fact, quite a shadow team. Yes. At least when it comes to to offense. So, yeah, it, it's, you know, really important it's really, really important that this line is able to do its job reasonably well. Yeah. Because if it's not, then a lot of the good that we expect to come out of the top two lines is undone immediately. Now, it, it, it's TBD how exactly this line is going to be used. If, if it's going to be used as a pure matchup line, you know, like hard match to top players... It's hard to see that going too well. I guess, you know, the bet you're making is that whichever of the Matthews and Tavares lines that goes up against easier competition will feast more than the other top line will against this one if you're going the hard match route. Mm-hmm. Um, Keith doesn't seem like a pure hard matcher. I don't think he's done that that much. No. So I think what's more likely is that this line will get kind of spot duty against top uh, competition. And... Also, the Taveras and Matthews lines will have to take up some of that slack, too. And, and, you know, we need to expect those lines to be able to go up against other strong competition and win those. Yes. And that's about the size of it. The thing about this is, I look at this and I think, okay, it looks like the top nine is set up to make this line be a thing. And that's been our takeaway here. Because, again, Zach Hyman being left wing to the stars is one of the clearest discoveries in recent Leafs history. Yeah. It's, it it's, just, it makes a lot of sense. Things. And Keith knows that. Babcock mm-hmm. deserves credit for. Yeah. That was one thing he was definitely right about. And so, and Keith knows it too. He used him <laughs> in the same way. And so if we're moving away from that, and maybe we're just seeing what we have, I think we need to have some sort of benefit and that has to show up somewhere. I think we're getting a little bit weaker in the top six left wing in order to get some benefit here. And I look at this and I'm like, I'm thinking I'm not seeing the benefit here. And you can make other adjustments. You can try and devise other shutdown lines, you know, depending on who was available on a given night, what you think they can do. It's, I can't see any combination of players really amongst these that does what I think this line is supposed to do. I don't yeah, think I don't... the Leafs have players outside their big four who are going to shut down significantly better competition. Yep, pretty much. Um, that, that, that's the thing. I think we're, we're trying to make that Coleman line without the horses. Yeah, and that sucks, but that's how it goes. And unless someone takes a big leap this year, and you never know, it's a crazy world, we probably don't have the material for it. Yeah, and like we could easily be wrong here, right? It's not like Barkley yeah. Goodrow was on everyone's radar. It's like, oh, this guy's a great defensive player two years ago. Yeah, right? he was the guy who was, like, kind of anonymous on that group. Like, Coleman was having a great year. Gord had had some very productive seasons. Didn't he score but, three goals once? Yeah, but Goodrow kind of came out of nowhere, so... Yeah, before that, Barkley Goodrow was most well-known for being that guy on the Sharks who sounds like he's an investment banker. <laughs> yes, it's a memorable name. So yeah, and so I'm open to trying this to some extent. Intuitively, it seems to me like you have taken a great offensive complementary player 
and put him with two kind of middling offensive players in the apparent quest of making a shutdown line. Yeah, and it's, it's, it's not clear to me that this will work, but I also don't see any better options for this type of nine, right? If you're... Um, if, if you put Hyman up on the top line left wing, you, you, you change kind of the goal of what each line is going to do uh, mm-hmm. in a pretty significant way, because at that point, you're going to have to go power versus power. Yes, and to be honest, I think that's ultimately the answer here. It's yeah. you have these four superlative forwards. That's what you are. That's what you've got. And you probably are just going to have to say, we got to ride with these guys because we don't have anyone else who has super special ability. And so, as you'd expect, I think in playoff games and the like, you're going to see a short bench and just throw in Matthews, then Tavares, then Matthews, then Tavares, every single chance. And that'll be it. You know, obviously you can't ignore your third line or your team will die. I'm just saying... It's going to end up being not so much third-line hard matches and a lot more top six is supposed to run them over. But that's, we'll see. That's my expectation as well. Mm-hmm. I'd like to be proven wrong. And I don't have an issue with Keith trying this. Yeah. Right? Like, I, I, I'm, yeah. I'm fine with this as a, as something worth looking into. Yeah, because... and I should say as, a, as kind of a parting note, as much as we sound like we're critical of the conception here, this is the place to make experiments. So... By all means, try it, and maybe we'll be surprised. Because in the end, we don't know how Mikhaev Kerfoot and right-wing Zach Hyman will work together, and maybe they can do more than I think. So, yeah, uh, the the fourth line will be quicker, because they're a fourth line and they don't matter as much. Mm -hmm. Uh, They have Alexander Barabanov. Um, I don't know anything about him, other than, you know, he's come from Russia. He's apparently high skill. And, again, persistent under pressure. I feel like I'm saying that a lot today. I barely noticed him last night, to be honest. The, the one time I noticed him, uh, he he passed the puck to Simmons in the neutral zone. And then I think Barabanov either was tripped or he fell. But for whatever reason, he was, like, on his way down. And then Simmons was trying to pass uh, across the neutral zone. But his pass pinged Barabanov on the head. <laughs> okay. <laughs> <laughs> That's what I remember. So it's a good start. Yeah. Uh, yeah, and then so the, the center here is Jason Spezza, and then the right wing is Wayne Simmons. And so Jason Spezza, we know we love. He's not super mobile anymore. He was a very good offensive fourth liner last year. If he's anything like that this year, we will be very grateful. He had a hot year last year, so I'm not expecting a total repeat. Mm-hmm. But, you know, he's still very savvy. I think he can do the job. And then Wayne Simmons is kind of a gritty power forward type. We talked about him a lot when we first signed him. I I mean, what stands out is that this looks like a kind of offensive fourth line, especially depending on what Urbanov can do. But Spezza and Simmons are both players who at earlier times in their career were very, very good offensive players. Mm -hmm. And they still have some of that in their skill set. And so you know, by some contrast to the third line, which really looks defensive oriented. This looks like a line that's kind of designed to outscore the Matt Martins of the world. So to speak, like, I think that this is maybe a surprisingly offense leaning fourth line, whereas a lot of fourth lines, you know, get thrown on for a defensive start. It's just do your best, try to have nothing happen. 
and then come off. This one might try and actually outscore their opposition a little bit. Yeah, and it seems like we're, we're hoping that we'll pick up some goals on the margin through this line, mm-hmm. um, which would be nice, right? Uh, yeah. But th- this is also another line that informs the the usage of the third line, right? Uh, we Spezza isn't a shutdown fourth line guy. He's not, you know, Sean Corrali. No. Or anything like that. Um, so, yeah, you're you're limited with what you can do with with him, and he, he's still a very useful player. Don't get me wrong, but mm-hmm. in order to get the most out of him, he probably has to be used in a bit of a particular way. Yeah. Now there are teams that have done offensive fourth lines. Uh, mm-hmm. Columbus famously did it with Sam Gagne a couple of years back. He had a career year, and they were able to feast on fourth line competition to a large extent. That said. The problem with that whole conception, because it's an appealing idea in theory, right? You're thinking, okay, a lot of fourth lines kind of suck. Why don't we just jump on them with some talented players? Well, the truth is most teams are not deep enough that their fourth line is that much better than other fourth lines. And in recent memory, Spezza has been at best like a low end third liner. And Simmons is now right now he's a fourth liner. Maybe he can get get back if they each have a career resurgence and Barabanov turns out to be pretty good. Maybe they can do this, but we should be hesitant to assume a big skill gap against other fourth lines. And as a practical matter, fourth lines play so little that it's even easier for them to kind of get swallowed by PDO. Like if you have a few failed saves on the defensive end, your numbers are going to suck because you don't get that much time to try and redress it or to have it balance out. The difference between fourth lines and talent is typically much smaller than mm-hmm. what can be experienced through very, very regular variants. Yeah. So, kind of the, the truth is, is that this could be a very good fourth line and a very smart decision to arrange these players in this fashion. And bad luck could just make it look terrible. That could happen to any line, but with fourth lines, it's a really pronounced risk. Because, yeah, anything can happen in eight minutes a night. So, yeah, I'm intrigued by the arrangement here. Which, again, it really looks to me as if it's oriented towards that third line. That looks like what we're trying to find out about. And, again, if it turns out we have our own uh, Barclay, Goodrow, Yanni Gord, and Blake Coleman line waiting in the wings here, that's awesome. I just don't see any basis to assume that. Uh, yeah. Any right. other so, thoughts on the forwards? Or No, we, we can wrap up on the forwards here. I, th- I think it's... A couple things strike me. Um, mm-hmm. And um, we mentioned one of them before. One, we're not deep anymore, right? We're, we're, yeah. we're a top six, bottom six team, very, very clearly. We're going to mm-hmm. lean on the top six. A lot relies, even within the construction of those lines, a lot relies on the two stars of each line to do the heavy lifting. The third guy is very much the third guy even if it's joe thornton yeah right um they're going to be passengers for the most part and the success and failure of that line is really going to be driven by the stars Mm -hmm. and it's unfair to an extent but that's sort of what you sign up for when you get paid a lot of money right those expectations are, are put upon you um secondarily we're not very fast anymore Mm. yes Right, like, in fact, I I think 
we we don't have a lot of fast, talented offensive players. Period. At this point, no. Uh, Tavares, as we said, is not a burner. Nylander is fast, but he's not you know fastest in the league or anything like that. Um, Matthews is again, he, he's a reasonably fast player, but that's not his calling card offensively. Marner is certainly more agile than than straight line quick. And, yeah. you know, the, the complementary wingers that we have, which used to be kind of the source of a decent amount of, of speed and offense uh, in, in Kapanen and Janssen, they're not there anymore. Yeah. I mean, Mikhaev is, I would say, decently quick. Mm-hmm. But really, he stands out. And, of course, Joe Thornton is very, very slow at this yeah, point. Yeah, and, and I guess more to the point, we don't play fast anymore. That's, that's the other thing. Like, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's both a system thing and a talent thing. Right? Yes. Our, our system is now geared more towards controlled offensive possession than it is to, to quick strike uh, offense. Yeah, and you do wonder if that kind of fed into some of the choices that we made because, obviously, Joe Thornton, Jimmy Feasy, um, Alexander Barabanov, Wayne Simmons, these were all acquisitions that were made this summer or this offseason. And so is that done with a thinking that these are the kind of players that Sheldon Keefe is going to want? Let's give them to him. I don't know. Uh, all in all, you know, it's a good lineup. It should still be the best forward lineup, I think, in the Canadian division. Because I don't think the Canadian division is that strong. But you can see some issues here. You'd like to see someone establish themselves as unexpectedly good. Because as it stands... Yeah, it is. It's four guys and then a lot of maybes and several guys who used to be very good, but we no longer should be totally confident in what they can bring to the lineup. So, yeah, a lot of question marks. The defense is kind of ironically, given that everyone agrees it's more of a problem. I think there are fewer question marks here. Still some, but Mm -hmm. it's pretty much what you would think. So the top pairing is going to be Morgan Riley and TJ Brody, not necessarily defensively, but that should be the offensive top pairing. Um, we all know what Morgan Riley is at this point. We've talked about him a billion times. He's a glass cannon pretty well, very physically gifted, genuinely very good offensive defenseman, not so strong defensively. TJ Brody is a bit of a Swiss army knife player. Uh, the fear of him would be that he was carried by Giordano and that he's not actually that great on his own merits. But I think he's pretty good all around. He's not really bad at anything. The two of them, you would expect to play pretty consistently behind one of the top two lines. So they should have very good forward quality and they should handily win their minutes more or less based on that. Because... They, especially Riley, are good offensive defensemen playing with great forwards. And they don't necessarily have to do shutdown work, but they should be, you know, handily outscoring the competition just based on you're getting to play behind Matthews and or Tavares. Right. I think people are a bit shy on Brody because of the residual Tyson Berry disappointment. Mm-hmm. Um, and again, I'm going to take this moment to crow that we, we were kind of quite skeptical about Barry, and we, we were proven correct. Um, we should have been more skeptical, to be honest. Though. <laughs> yeah, like, uh, listening to that podcast back, it's like we we were pretty much correct about what we said, but we were we were hesitant because it was against what everyone else was saying, and we were we kind of doubted ourselves, and we shouldn't because again, we we are right in our analysis. <laughs> um, the the big takeaway here is we're always right, and we're never going to make mistakes again. 
Exactly. And yeah. All right. Good. But yeah, like there, I think there hasn't been that much excitement about Brody, mm-hmm. um, f- because of uh, because of that that Barry disappointment. But Brody on paper looks like exactly what we needed. Yeah. Right. And he he's been a player who has had kind of wild swings year to year in performance, mm-hmm. which can always be a bit worrisome, especially when changing teams when when going from. Uh, playing with Mark Giordano to, to not playing with Mark Giordano, right? There's there's certainly variance. I can see there, there's there's poss- there's a, definitely a world where we don't get the the TJ Brody that we expect. If we do get the TJ Brody we expect, it makes our lives so so much easier. And mm-hmm. um, he's a bit of a boring player, and that, I don't mean that as a negative at all. Boring is exactly what the Leafs need on defense. Yeah, they need competent people who can do their job without getting gift five times a game for sending a slap shot into Mars. <laughs> yes, that would be delightful. I would enjoy that very much. So, yeah, I think that this is... We, You know, we talked about the loss of depth and the forward group. Well, here's the payoff. It's supposed to be TJ Brody. And if he can deliver as expected and Riley Brody can be a solid NHL top pairing then we'll be quite happy. And the team will be better as a result. And, yeah, that's about the size of it. Um, the, the big takeaway, again, with Brody seems to be that he should be able to make this pairing at least competent in most things. A lot of the pain of cheering for the Leafs in recent years has been the extreme swings between very good offense and quite poor defense. Brody seems like he might be able to moderate some of the pain a little bit in terms of those glaringly awful outcomes. And so I'm hopeful that that's the case. Yeah. In general, what the Leafs did this offseason is they they got rid of a lot of players who, while not necessarily replacement-level players, provided replacement-level value last year. Mm-hmm. Right? We talked about how Kappen and Neonson had poor years. Uh, CC is actually a replacement-level player. And so on, right? And, and there was a lot of players who the Leafs essentially got very little production out of. And they replaced them with, you know, a host of new guys. Of those new guys, Brody is the most likely to provide serious positive value. Yeah, he's the big ad. The offseason was about him, even though Joe Thornton is obviously the big name and the big personality. But at this point in their careers, TJ Brody is the impact player. So let's hope that he's able to make a very good impact. And yeah. The whole team looks better as a result. Um, the second pairing is very familiar to us, Jake Muzzin and Justin Hall. We've talked about this being our shutdown pairing. They were before, they will be again. But insofar as anything in Leafsland can be underrated, which is not very much, everything gets talked to death. But, like, this pairing was really effective in hard minutes. And I almost feel like it's it's underrated. It's under-discussed how well that worked. They got 54% of the goals and 57% of the expected goals in tough minutes against tough competition with the lowest offensive zone starts of any pairing on the team that played significant minutes. I know we don't really care about zone starts that much anymore, but I just want to emphasize they were being used as a hard match line and they won the minutes they were in by a lot. And they did it with a very good expected goals against. They were good defensively. 
the only better defensive pairings that the team had were either low-minute units that had a tiny sample, or CC and Dermot, who were playing third-line duty. If the Leafs have this pairing and they can do that again, the team will take it and run, because they've had an actual, honest-to-God, good shutdown pairing. And I know, you know, obviously, Jake Muzzin is what that's about. But Justin Hall mostly seems to work with him pretty well as a decent transition player. And so, yeah, it's kind of found money. Yeah. I don't know that they'll be that, you know, I don't know that the numbers will be that gaudy again this year. But again, if they get anything like that, that's really good for the team. Really good. Mm-hmm. Pretty much. like, And, and again, we, we need this group to, to do well. Um, like the top two lines, this kind of rests heavily on Jake Muzzin. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we're, we're heavily dependent on our good players. I think Jake Muzzin's probably our best defender. Yeah, and, you know, you don't want to make excuses because there was a lot that was going wrong, but they certainly missed him against Columbus when he got mm-hmm. injured. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, so, yeah, and then we come to the third pairing, which, as currently constituted, has a couple of new names on it. Uh, Miko Letnin and Zach Bogosian. So Miko Letnin, he's a very good offensive defenseman in the KHL. He can shoot. I'm leery of defensemen who can shoot now. They scare me and I don't like them. I'm a bit gun shy. But I think he can do third pair duty, I would expect. Like, I, I assume that most players who are really, really good in the KHL could probably... Hackett as a third-pairing NHL defenseman. Whether he can be very good at it or more than that, I don't know. But he's hopefully going to be bringing the mobility to that pairing. And then for Zach Bogosian, I talked to Alan, friend of the pod, occasional guest, Tampa Bay Lightning fan, for his thoughts on Bogosian, who was recently in Tampa for their cup run. He said, Bogosian literally can't move anymore. But he seems like one of those guys who's fine in extremely limited sheltered minutes. Also, he does seem to be genuinely very likable in a traditional hockey sense. My read on him is that he knows the right stuff to do, but can't always physically do it because his hips are fused solid. Kind of the opposite of someone with all the physical ability, but no idea what's going on. Yeah, I, I can kind of back that up from... <laughs> that was my read on him from uh, watching him yesterday. Where he, mm-hmm. he, turn, he turns like an oil tanker. Yeah, like just big and unbelievably slow (laughs) yeah 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 now it's interesting we have some evidence that he's a really good penalty killer and that isn't that surprising based on what we just said in the foregoing you know he's big and rangy and as a defenseman on the pk if you know where to stand and you're smart you can do a lot without being super agile in fact you kind of don't want to move around that much because that results in openings yeah, it can be, especially, I mean, with the forwards, it's a lot more stop and start because you yeah. want to keep applying pressure. But as a defenseman, yeah, you can be a little steadier. And I'm sure that is a big part of his appeal. How Gill's, like, back half of his career was literally just him standing there with his 35-foot stick. Yeah, and committing, frankly, absolutely ridiculous obstruction penalties. <laughs> <laughs> but he got away with it, so it worked. Uh, yeah, so... You can see the use that Bogosian is going to have. Bogosian has been a punchline defenseman. I do find it interesting that he's described as actually being pretty smart and capable of reading the game well. Because a lot of those players who get memed about 
uh, your Jack Johnsons, your your Cody Cece's, what have you. They seem to be the other way around, where they look sort of like a classically strong physical defenseman, but they can't read the game for shit. I've always felt like CC just responded very badly to pressure when he had the puck. Like, he just either panicked or didn't process fast enough, or panicked because he knew he couldn't process fast enough and kind of threw it away. Um, Bogosian seemingly is a bit of a, another fit. There are, like, Zach Bogosian at some point in the probably not too distant future is going to get walked by somebody and it's going to be glaring and we'll kind of have to live with it. But could he be a third pair guy with Lettinen? Yeah, I hope so. Right. And it's going to be interesting to see where Dermot and Sandine fit into this. So they played on a pair yesterday. Yes. Um, Sandine had some nice moments. Uh, Dermot, I honestly don't remember that much. He turned the puck over once in his defensive zone, but that's kind of big mistaking him, right? Like, if you think of any defenseman, you're more likely to think of mistakes than things they did well. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, it seems like the the bottom pair is really going to be in flux. Yeah. And, I like, I absolutely believe Travis Dermott is going to get in, is going to get minutes at different times. The fact that he's even starting as the seven is maybe a little not great for him. Mm-hmm. Like, yeah, I'm sure he's not thrilled about it. Yeah, because, you know, they went out and they acquired more players who have slotted in ahead of him. And that kind of has two answers, neither of them great. Either they are correct, and he's just not better than Zach Bogosian, all things being equal, or they're really underrating him and his stock is somewhat lowered. Now, that said... They've always shown that they seem to like him in the past. He will kind of cycle in, but the road to top four minutes on the right side that we've always talked about with him, we don't know. But it's probably a good place to mention what overhangs all of these lineup decisions again is that injuries happen. They happen even in non-COVID years, but also there are going to be absences and we're going to see Guys who are on the taxi squad come in. Guys who are the seventh defenseman cycling through and playing higher minutes. I'm hopeful that, you know, this is as healthy a season as possible. Um, that the protocols that are in place are able to keep the players as safe as possible. But even under ordinary circumstances, there will be changes and things will be fluid. And not only will these lines not be set in stone, but they won't be able to be set in stone. Right. So, yeah, this is just a way of approaching the whole roster and giving us a chance to kind of look it up and down. Yep, I agree. Um, So is there anything else you wanted to add or should we uh, get out of here? No, I think we're good. All right, sweet. So thank you all for listening. Uh, We're excited to start another season of NHL hockey. Excited to start another season back to excited. We should be weekly from here on out. Uh, You can find all of mine and Fudelman's work at pensionfanpuppets.com. Uh, and of course, you know, as the season ramps up and actually it starts on Wednesday, PPP is going to have you covered for basically all the coverage you need, um, features, analysis, game day stuff, whatever. Uh, so definitely, you know, check those, check them out. You can follow us on Twitter at RB and AT Thank you all for listening. We'll see you soon.